Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the education of a libertarian. All right, Richard, we're uh, we're going to do something a little bit different today. These shows always tend to be topical and we generally sort of eschew biography. But I thought today we might give our listeners a chance to, to get to know you a little more as a person and to understand your intellectual influences. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start with your your childhood. Did you grow up in a family that cared intensely about politics and public policy issues, the kind of things you've made your career on? Were there um, aspects of your childhood that shaped – how you ended up coming to think about the world? Well, I think the answer to the first question is by and large no. Uh, uh, my parents, when I was very young, uh, ran a medical practice out of the ground floor of a house in Brooklyn. My father was a radiologist and my mother ran the office. And my earliest memories of my parents were working in their white coats and then rushing upstairs to lunch and then rushing back downstairs again. Um, they didn't leave me alone and neglect me in any way, but they were so consumed with the business that they had little time whatsoever to deal with general kinds of political issues. I went to a school in Brooklyn called PS 161, which is now a building that is used by the Success Academy um, in New York City. It looks a lot better now than it did then, I might add. Um, and I went there. It was an all-Jewish environment. It was an all-liberal environment, I would say. And, you know, for the most part, we did not consider ourselves political in any way, shape, or form. My first political memory was Harry Truman was out of office and, uh, you know, whatchamacallit, uh, Dwight Eisenhower came in and I said, what's going to happen tomorrow? Nothing happened. So I assumed that political transitions were less complicated than they had been. The big event in my youth in terms of public events uh, occurred in uh, May of 1954. There were two of them. The first was Roger Bannister running the four-minute mile, which got a lot of attention in my <laughs> school. And the second, was a couple of weeks later, was Brown v. Board. And I can still remember my wonderful teacher, Mr. Greenberg, getting up in front of the class and announcing that this decision will augur in a fundamental change in relationships in the United States. As a boy growing up in Brooklyn, I was certainly aware of the racial divide. In fact, my own neighborhood started as an all-Jewish, all-white, all-doctor area. And by the time we moved out to Great Neck, Long Island, when I was 11 years old, it had been essentially part of Bedford-Stuyvesant. It was a genuinely traumatic kind of social transformation. And the Brooklyn Jewish Hospital, where my father had worked, eventually closed down. And the Long Island Jewish Hospital, now merged with North Shore, uh, was at that time a small 200-bed hospital. And it's grown into this colossus. And, you know, you start thinking about it. Uh, the suburban hospital was born out of the city hospital, and it's the transformation that marked New York City in those years. Now, I was aware of politics to some extent, but I was never a politician. And in fact, I go off to Columbia College. Again, it's mostly Jewish and, and quite liberal. And I sit there, and uh, what really moved me to begin with was not my my libertarian instincts, I don't think I had all that many. It was my contrarian instincts. I, you go into a place and you start hearing everybody saying, well, we clearly have to do this. It's impossible to have parents. I could remember the argument being um, uh, take care of their children or children take care of their parents. You have to have some large public system in order to do this, whether it's Social Security or Medicare. And you know, my attitude at the time was I really wasn't sure one way or another whether this was a good or a bad thing. But it just seemed to me to be so 
odd to assume that the issue was so clearly one way when the practice had been so clearly the other way that after a while I just started to think about it and say, does it or does it not make sense? Um, and this had nothing to do with politics in the short term. In fact, by 1964, when I had gone to England, um, Barry Goldwater starts running for president and I think I shared many of the anxieties of my contemporaries that he might actually win the election. But then when I started to listen to what LBJ said, I said, I'm not so sure I agree with anything that that guy had. And so between college and then starting English law school, all of a sudden I did legal theory in a rather close way. And I discovered much to my amazement that a lot of the 19th century judges, American and English, whom you would describe as classical liberals, seemed to make a lot of sense. And so it was through that kind of material and studying it that I developed my political reviews. It was not in the crucible of life. Um, to give you but one illustration, when I first arrived at Oxford, there was this case called Rooks Against Barnard that had been just decided about the Trade Disputes Act of 1906. And I went to several lectures of it given by professors who harangued the audience about the ultimate evil of this particular decision, creating a tort of incrimination, intimidation for what we today call a secondary boycott. I remember being totally confused by the whole thing until I read the statute that was an issue in the case that decided it and finally concluded, as I still conclude today, that if there was one disastrous piece of legislation in England for labor markets, it was the Trade Disputes Act of 1906, which all of these people were defending fiercely. So by the time I come back to the United States in 1966, I actually am an intellectual libertarian, but not one with much interest in politics. It's more the history of ideas and sort of the evolution of law from the 19th through the 20th century. This was 50 odd years ago, but some of these exchanges I remember like they happened yesterday, whereas some things that happened yesterday, I don't remember. <laughs> so in the context of your, your academic career, by which I mean your academic career as a student, mm. was this all swimming against the stream or were there certain professors along the way that had a significant influence on you, people who you actually agreed with? Well, let's see. I had a lot of professors who had an influence on me, but interestingly enough, most of them weren't, at least as I understood them, to be classical liberals. Um, uh, let me just sort of mention several in my college career, if it matters. One of them, perhaps the most famous, was a man named Daniel Bell, who was an ex-Marxist who insisted that power really mattered in the way in which you understood social relationships. But I would have described him as a right-wing Democrat, somebody who essentially thought markets work, but that they had to be a strong social conscience. He was also part of the right democratic movement on foreign affairs because one has to remember how hard it is today uh, that not only were the Democrats more sensible on domestic issues at that time, but they actually were very active in the formation of NATO and the sort of the reciprocal guarantee uh, that it created in April 1949 when the first thing was put into place. And so, you know, he had a lot of influence on me. He actually talked to me. He One day he took me to the faculty club, which was a rare thing at Columbia College. Um, and, you know, he sat down there and he gave me two pieces of wisdom, uh, one of which was personally, he says, you should never eat any complicated food at dinner given your table manner, so just get something real simple <laughs> to eat. Um, that's a 
useful piece of advice. And then as we were walking out of the club, he stops and talks to two or three people. And as we continue down the steps, he just looks at me and he says, you know, politics are endemic to all institutions. And, you know, that was a real heads up on the way in which these things operated. Another one of my early professors was a man named Ernest Nagel. And, you know, he was essentially a philosopher of science who became disenchanted with the movements and philosophies in the 1960s. To him, philosophy was a way of explaining how this worked, and your job was to clarify the universe. By the time the 1960s are coming along, uh, many philosophers seem to think that their primary obligation in life is to obscure things that might otherwise be true. And, you know, again, these little stories that make a difference, we're reading stuff about Sense and Sensibilia, that is A.J. Ayer and J.L. Austin, and there was this very fancy theory going around that there really weren't things out there in the world, they were just sensations, something that a man named Ayer called qualia, and that you put together the things out of the qualia and so you know Nagel gets up there in front of the class one day and he says tell me how in qualia language you tell somebody to meet you tomorrow um, at noon at the uh, subway station at 116th Street and Broadway and of course you can't do it because you know it's the same station whether it's a bright day or a cloud day even though everything looks different and the only way you can do this is essentially to cut through the muck and to see the object behind the sensations and to correct for it and then I began to realize that at the same time when I studied more or less on my own evolutionary theory uh, that if the only thing we had was sensations and we couldn't figure out what real things were, uh, we could never navigate ourselves through the world. And so that what happens is selection bias would be uh, to create a brain that can, as it were, selectively filter out irrelevant from relevant information uh, so that you could essentially manipulate yourself in the world. And Nagel was the same thing when it came to language. You know, there were lots of skeptics about language and he was always somebody who says you could say it simply and you could say it well and you could understand what other people do. And this turned out to make me into something of an anti-legal realist. The folks who say that language is infinitely pliable, that you could do whatever you want with it. And my entire sort of constitutional views on language started from these early philosophical discussions in which it turned out that plain meaning was generally right and that ambiguities were the exception and they were not the rule. And I guess the third of the early teachers I have, who's still alive barely, is a man named David Sidorsky. Um, he was the master at close reading. And so, you know, we took a bunch of texts, most notably something by Plato called the Theotetus, and we start reading it on knowledge and its definition. And what Plato did was have three accounts. The first one was knowledge is perception. The second one was knowledge is a true belief. And the third one was knowledge was a true belief plus an account as to why it was true. And what Sidorsky pointed out, and it was just such a brilliant little point to make, is he says that Plato in good style spends an enormous amount of time refuting the first claim that knowledge is perception and very little time refuting the third claim which which is the one that's most important. And, and the basic lesson that you get from that is when you're trying to deal with your intellectual adversaries or even to formulate your own ideas, the key thing that you have to do at every time is be extremely careful to state the position that is in opposition to your own with sufficient clarity on how it works. Now, the one thing I've left out about all of this is that to the extent that I've developed economic thinking or general equilibrium theory, none of these teachers actually were really interested in doing all of that stuff. And how I came to that, you know, it's still very unclear even in my own mind. 
I was always curious about everything and I could never major in any subject. I didn't have the attention span. And slowly I kind of drifted into the study of evolution, into the study of economics. And all of a sudden you started to realize that these things could be explained to some extent in terms of law. I was very influenced by a maxim by uh, Lord Kelvin, the one who created the Kelvin steel with absolute zero. And he says, if you don't know what you're maximizing or minimizing, you don't know what you're talking about. And you know, that was he did as a physical law. And the correlate of that is every physical law says you're trying to minimize or maximize something. And it turns out I believe that's actually true with respect to social behaviors. Because if something is better on one dimension and worse on the other dimension, and you don't have a maximization theory, you have no idea as to how to decide what's going on. And slowly what that does is it leads to a kind of reductionist theory in which essentially you have to take all competing variables and reduce them to a single quantity, call it utility, and then try to figure out how to map the indifference curves of various individuals and then combine them into a social curve by what we usually call Parisian transformations. That is, a situation in which one state of the world is better than another. If everybody in the first state of the world is at least as well off as in the second, then one person is better off so that you don't have to add aggregates in one way, shape, or form, which is an extremely important uh, technique to get rid of subjectivism in moral theory. So, you know, you go through all of this stuff and you put it together and then when I go to law school in England the great advantage I had is I had nobody bossing me around um, I pretty much read on my own I had tutorials my most influential tutor was a man who recently died named Bernard Rudden who was ostensibly a property lawyer and a Russian historian but he knew huge amounts of stuff other than that and even though he never taught me any particular course he would sit and actually talk with me and you know treat me as though I was a future academic rather than as a present student. And that made all the difference in terms of your intellectual self-esteem. So by the time I came back to the Yale Law School in 1966 at the height of all the agitation, I was, uh, shall we say, cut out of very different timber from everybody else in that class. You know, I was steeped in Roman law, medieval English law, judicial theory. I knew very little about American federalism and very little about American constitutionalism. And I was essentially much more of a traditional legal thinker than they were and slowly what happened is I realized and it took me a long time to do it that the methods I had developed partly through instruction and partly on my own in England would allow me to talk about American constitutional law and that leads up you know 50 years later to my book on the classical liberal constitution it all comes back to those early educational days well so speaking of books if you were listing sort of the literary canon for you what would make the cut which books have been the most influential on your views over the years First of all, it's always books you read when you're young um, because at that point, you you really are harem scarum. You're never quite sure what you believe in. And so a good book on something can really take you a very long way. And so let me sort of mention a bunch of the books that I did read. Um, The first of them was a book by F.W. Maitland. Pollock was listed as a co-author, but he really wasn't. And it was The History of English Law. And this was a two-volume work which essentially traced the evolution of English law from about the time of the uh, conquest to the end of the regime of Edward I, which was about 13. 
1907, I think it was. And he went through it in great detail. And the man was an intuitive genius. And so you start reading him on tenure and complicated relationships and how these things go. And what you learn from Maitland was how it is that you could start to build together a comprehensive legal system by starting with simple dyadic relationships to people and then constantly adding people in on either side of it so that instead of having only two moving parts, you have three moving parts. If you've got two moving parts, there are only two, one combination you can have. And then when you start having these other parts, you could have A, B, B, C, right? And, you know, C, A. And then you can have all three together. And the more people you get, the more complicated it gets. And so developing a reductionism based on the way in which uh, our friend Maitland would explain landlord-tenant law was really an absolute eye-opening. The initial portions of that book were remarkable. A second book I read which was written about the same time, was Oliver Wendell Holmes on the common law. And this book had a slightly different message to me. I mean, the guy was extremely good at at sort of giving broad overviews of the world. And he managed to turn a phrase like nobody else did. I think of all the legal books I've ever read, uh, the common law, at least in its most famous portions, is perhaps the most elegant. It's also wrong, as best I can tell, on virtually every major proposition that it puts forward. <laughs> um, you know, they, you collapse criminal law into tort law, that mental states really don't matter. Um, he starts talking about that. He doesn't quite understand the relationship between negligence and strict liability. He gets much too fussy on the law of bailments. But what happens is when you read these people, you ask yourself the question, why is he wrong and how is he right? Uh, so you're doing both things at the same time. And the book was so prerog- pr- you know, provocative that by the time I you know, figured out what was going on, I really could develop a fairly powerful counter system. And the third of the books that I read early on, again, when I was in England, was a book by H.L.A. Hart and Tony Honoré. Honoré is still alive. And it was called Causation in the Law. And its philosophical foundations had to do with the attack on realism, which says that causation isn't a descriptive term. It's just a matter of policy. And we use it for whatever purposes we want. Of course, you can't figure out what the purposes are, particularly if one of them is we want to stop people from causing harm to others. But watching Hart do this, it was like watching a piston engine crash when it tried to get up to the next level. I went to his lectures at Oxford, and the man was remarkable for his intellectual candor. And he was, I mean, really exceptionally smart. And then what he starts to do is he starts to talk about causation, not in connection with traditional physical injuries, where his principles are not quite right, but pretty close to right that you could work with them. He's trying to understand contract and antitrust and other kinds of business relationships and everything starts to break down and Hart was no fool he knew he did not understand all of that stuff when he started to teach to it and so I went back and I looked at the book on the weak sections and I realized he didn't do it and I said well what's the problem that he had and well it turns out this is what it is if you're talking about physical injury cases where you hit somebody over the head or set a trap into which somebody falls a trap being a concealed situation of danger and so forth. Um, If you get it right, it's between the parties. Essentially, all third parties take care of themselves. So maximizing welfare is between the injurer and the injury means that you have it pretty much correctly. When you start dealing with contractual arrangements and complicated business arrangements, 
Sometimes the private welfare of the two parties corresponds to social welfare. Sometimes it does not. And so, for example, when you have contracts in restraint of trade, the reason you don't enforce them is because you know that the systematic negative effects outweigh the positive gains between the parties. And you only know that because you understand Alfred Marshall, 1890, and the first systematic explanation of the differences between competition and monopoly. Now, Hart had absolutely no systematic knowledge of that sort. And if you don't know those kinds of things, you can't get it right. Then when it comes to contract, it's the same problem in a slightly different version. Uh, There are always going to be damage provisions in contract, um, which allocate the loss in the event that something untoward happens, but they're not based on causation. What they are is they're based upon a sense of the two parties coming together and saying, look, Uh, We have to figure out two things. One, how we minimize the likelihood of an occurrence of damages. And secondly, how when it occurs, we minimize the adverse consequences that flow from the breach. It turns out in most situations, a you pay everything that you've caused is an absolutely inefficient solution. Uh, The correct way to do it, which is done in virtually every contract, is you have a lump sum that you have to pay um, if you're in breach. And then the other guy um, just simply takes the money and tries to minimize his losses. There's no situation where you try to figure out what the actual losses are and then impose some vague duty on the other fellow to mitigate the losses in question. And Hart didn't understand the principles of ex-ante contract maximization, so we could never understand why cases like Hadley and Baxendale which was a very confused decision having to do with the differences between contract damages and tort damages, why the intuition was right that there had to be a difference and why the decision was wrong when it couldn't figure out what the difference was or how it mattered. And it was coming back to the United States, going out to USC, and for the first time in my life being exposed to people who did systematic economic work. Still, my two close friends were large parts of this. Michael Levine, who's now at NYU as a visiting professor, and Bob Ellickson, who just retired at least half time from Yale. Uh, they were most insistent in pushing all of that. Uh, Michael had studied with Ronald Coase, who later became a greater friend of mine. And I could still remember, you know, being lectured on transactions costs and cartel pricing and so forth. And this was really quite strange to me because my English education did nothing of this. And even when I went to the Yale Law School, with the exception of a great man named Ward Bowman, who did understand these kinds of things, um, nobody else understood the way in which this was to work. So what you really had to do with your education was to be able to run the gamut. You have to understand all the ancient categories, Roman law, medieval stuff, and so forth. And then you have to understand the explanatory techniques that come out of modern game theory, modern economics, modern evolutionary theory, and so forth. And I was very fortunate to have the kind of mind that make that work, which is essentially I never wanted to specialize in anything from the time I was nine years old. I never majored in anything in college. What I always did is I read what I thought was interesting and then try to put it all together. And so what you do is you have a rather different set of pieces on your jigsaw table uh, from most people. And hopefully if you see the way in which the pieces get put together, you can develop generalized theories that move across different areas. And I've tried to keep that up as a professor by keep on teaching new courses, you know, teach war 
water law one year, environmental law another year, food and drug law another year, land finance another year. It's not that I know anything about these things when I start, but I have a sufficiently large background that when I see a new set of puzzles coming up, there's a large set of analogies on which I can draw to understand these areas better than maybe some of the people in it. And also understanding the new areas helps me better understand the old areas. So that's the sort of intellectual process that I've gone through. And you'll note there is no political component to any of this. Um, Never has been important in my life. I do speak about politicians, uh, but I never speak as an ordinary party. And one of the things that you discover is if you want to be an academic, you can't be a political figure. If you're a political figure, your first duty is to endorse your candidate, which means everything that's on your candidate's menu is on your plate. And if you're an academic, I could pick one from this column and one from that column. You preserve your independence of choice with respect to individual issues, and you could try to sound like a classical liberal, which is what I am today, and to do so in a fashion which essentially treats you as somebody who feels equally comfortable in taking after Democrats or Republicans or both at large. I think the great tragedy of the United States today, as I've mentioned so many times, is the disappearance of the right wing of the Democratic Party, uh, those who believe in basic market institutions coupled with liberal views on social issues. That is where I think you could get a consensus and it turns out that it's just not there anymore. So as an analytical person, when I look at what's coming out today, particularly from the Democrats but often from the Republicans, it's kind of a horror show. The Democrats are pushing hard down on counterproductive programs and when Republicans, they don't oppose them in principle for the most part, although sometimes they do. What they always say is slow down, you're going too fast, let's make this journey last. And the point is the battle over the minimum wage law, for example, should not be whether we go from 7 to 15 or 7 to 10. It should be whether the thing is repealed and that's a debate which you can't get on the political tables today, which leads sometimes to my immense personal distress and dismay. Right. So, Richard, we're—I mean—we're running quite long, and I've got uh, more questions than we have time. So, we'll revisit this at some point down the road. But my final question, just for you, very briefly: mm-hmm. Let's assume for a moment that there's someone listening to this podcast who has it within himself or herself to be the next Richard Epstein, maybe an undergrad or a law student, but someone who's going to be a deeply influential public intellectual, someone who's views are broadly similar to your own. What advice would you give to someone like that as they're starting out their career? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, there's a piece of advice you can't give to people. People often ask me, well, you've been very creative in your life. How do you come up with all these crazy ideas? And the real answer is I don't know. I mean, I sit down and I read something and I get upset. I could still recall when I was at Oxford and I was reading some opinions I didn't like, I would bang the table and start kicking the chair and people would come up to me and say, why do you care so much? So the first thing you have to do is you actually have to care. Uh, the second thing you have to do is to avoid having a strong mentor. Um, it's very very dangerous to be taught by somebody whose beliefs are strong and well-placed because what happens is then you always become second-generation somebody else rather than first-generation yourself. There are obviously places for people like that. But if you're trying to become a leading figure, you have to be able to carve your own path through the wilderness. And you can't do that if you simply take your lead from somebody who's been able to do that in his or her field. And then the third thing is, is one which I stress all the time is that you have have to have a very elastic definition of relevance. There are so many people who says, well, you know, what I want to do is I want to be an expert in the law of security. So they'll study securities, more securities, and more securities still. 
It's not the way to do things. Uh, what you want to do is to study all sorts of complex social institutions, voluntary organizations, anything which involves the coordination of multiple actors, uh, foreign affairs, whatever else it turns out to be, and then slowly bring that knowledge into your area. If you basically prejudge what's relevant to your own field before you actually have studied things that are quote-unquote outside of it, you'll never understand what's going on. So you have to be perpetually curious and you have to go to workshops and to lectures and so forth that are out of your area. You have to tolerate some really stupid speeches that are given from time to time by so-called experts because you can learn from their mistakes and not make them yourself. And then what you have to do is you have to have an extraordinary level of persistence. Uh, you can't succeed in this business unless it really haunts you day and night. Um, academics, they work consciously when they're sitting at their typewriter and talking with their colleagues, but they have to be able to work like a computer in the background when they're sleeping, showering, and so forth. And, and if these things just don't grab you, it's not going to happen. And then it just you know, it depends a little bit on dumb luck. I, I felt very fortunate when I arrived into legal academics in 1968 because I could sense that the old order was starting to crumble and the new order had not yet been put together. Um, I would say that the crumbling started in the early 1960s with a large number of people, you know, Guido Calabresi, Ronald Coase, Dick Posner and his youth and so forth, Henry Manny, Gary Becker, Jim Buchanan, Gordon Tullock, they all wrote kind of really important books of one kind or another. And, you know, I'm coming there on the back end of it and I said, what do I have that they don't have? And it turned out I had a much deeper particularistic knowledge of the way in which various legal doctrines and institutions were put together. So my job was to sort of take the wisdom of public choice and the wisdom of game theory and start to make it operational with respect to rules in any and all sorts of areas. And, you know, that culminated, I would say, in three books just to end it. The first of these was my takings book, where much to my amazement, I realized that everything about the New Deal was unconstitutional if you took the Constitution seriously. That didn't win me a lot of friends, I have to say, <laughs> at the time. Uh, but I only think that the last 30 years have confirmed that particular view rather than undermine it. I then wrote a book called Simple Rules for a Complex World, laying out the basic structure of legal disciplines across all substantive areas, which you could only do if you knew started with the Roman laws who got the categories by and large correct and then build onto it an explanational structure which they couldn't possibly supply in order to make it hang together. And then I wrote uh, in this last year the classical liberal constitution which takes the constitution and reads it from this perspective systematically from soup to nuts on structural issues and on individual liberty issues. And so you know, if anyone wants to know what of mine they ought to read, well, the answer is either nothing or something. But if it's something, it's probably some combination of those three books among amongst the many other books that I've written on more specialized problems. But to me, the thing that I keep telling myself when I wake up in the morning is if I stop working today, I won't be able to start tomorrow. And so if it's by the time it's 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon and I haven't written anything, I feel very guilty about it all. And I sit down to my typewriter and – excuse me, my computer at this particular <laughs> point in time and do battle with the screen and the keyboard, which essentially is the last lesson that everybody has to know. If you really want to be a serious scholar, it's, you have to be gregarious. You've got to talk to everybody. Never miss a chance to have lunch with people. Never. 
if you can possibly help it. And then you have to be able to work alone and to fight with the screen and to realize if you have nothing to say, nothing will appear. And then let that motivate you so that you could actually learn to write in a kind of a consistent fashion, knowing that every hour that you sit down, you could get an hour of work done. That took a long time in my life uh, to do. But at this particular point in time, if I sit down and I write for five minutes, I can do five minutes worth of stuff. You develop enough little tricks to let your pick off where you're left off and you just keep on going and the moment you stop you're finished all right thank you richard and thank you to our listeners and remember you can find richard's weekly column the product of one of those fights with the screen the libertarian by visiting defining ideas at hoover.org and you can follow him on twitter at richard a epstein for the hoover institution i'm troy Sinek. thanks for listening This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.